Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Monday, October 2nd, 2006, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. This is going to be another podcast with a keynote speaker from our upcoming Congress in February of 2007, and today we will be interviewing Dr. Patrick Kohanek, MD, FCCM. He will be giving a plenary talk entitled Emergency Preservation for Resuscitation Beyond CPR, and that will be on Sunday, February 18th, 2007. And in today's podcast, we will get an opportunity to learn a little bit more about Dr. Kohanek, his background, and some of the things that uh, the average intensivist might learn by going to his speech. And I just wanted to uh, give a little bit of a background here. Dr. Kohanek wears many hats, and I'm going to try and get this right. He is a full professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He has joint appointments in anesthesia and pediatrics. He's vice chair of the department for research, or one of the vice chairs. He is director of the Peter Saffer Center for Resuscitation Research. He is also editor-in-chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, and he will be receiving the Distinguished Investigator Award at the upcoming Critical Care Congress. Um, I think I got most of that right. How did I do? You did just fine. <laughs> okay. Um, I thought we'd start out by letting you tell us a little bit of both your personal and professional background. Uh, I know you've been at the University of Pittsburgh for quite some time, but perhaps telling us uh, how you ended up in critical care and specifically the research uh, interests that you currently have. Uh, it's a great question, uh, and it's kind of an interesting answer. Um, I was interested in uh, neuro-related uh, research uh, through my exposure as a medical student to Peter Huttenlocker, uh, kind of a master clinician neurologist at the University of Chicago. And uh, I did my residency uh, out at the University of California, San Diego. And it was quite interesting that uh, uh, an intensivist out there, pediatric intensivist, very avant-garde guy, quite ahead of his time, Brad Peterson, had uh, a very aggressive approach to uh, neuro-intensive care for children with a lot of use of hypothermia, barbiturate coma, intracranial pressure monitoring, pressure volume uh, assessment of uh, intracranial compliance uh, uh, in an early era, 25-plus years ago. And uh, uh, as a resident, I was pretty intrigued by this and Brad's passion and devotion to this kind of approach. And when I was a fellow, I went to D.C. Children's Peter Holbrook, obviously one of the, the you know kind of fathers of pediatric critical care and, uh, and, and an equally terrific uh, mentor, uh, I noticed that the approach was much less aggressive at D.C. Children, and I think it was 
along the East Coast in general and maybe at many other units. And I went up to Peter Holbrook and said, I'm really interested in you know why such an approach in one place and a different approach in another. And uh, uh, he said, well, you know, it's going to be a really difficult question to answer uh, in the ICU because, you know, patients are so sporadic and they're all so different. I think you should consider going to the lab to try to answer that. And I said, I'm ready. And uh, he said, but we don't have a lab. But fortunately, uh, D.C. Children's was located uh, in the in Washington, D.C. area and remarkably related to one of our journal clubs. So we did a paper uh, on uh, cerebral ischemia that was uh, uh, written by John Hallenbeck. And John Hallenbeck at that point was a captain in the United States Navy and a senior investigator at the United States Naval Medical Research Institute. And uh, I had the good fortune of working with John Hallenbeck, who was somewhat of a visionary in the area of inflammation and brain injury 25 years ago, when an era that everyone believed the brain was immunologically privileged. And now there's thousands of papers on the inflammatory response to brain injury. John Hallenbeck is uh, now the chief of uh, stroke branch of National Institute of Health. And so that's really how my career uh, started in research. And uh, I then came to Pittsburgh, uh, recruited after my fellowship uh, at D.C. Children's uh, by Peter Saffer and Ann Thompson. And, uh, you know, I've been in Pittsburgh ever since. From a clinical standpoint, uh, as someone who's a pediatric uh, intensivist, did you at some point decide to in a, whether or not to also do an anesthesia residency, or, or or how do you give some advice just off the topic a little bit to people who come to you and decide whether or not to do uh, multiple residencies or, or which ones and all that, if you could talk about that for a little bit? Well, I didn't do an anesthesia residency. I was at D.C. Children's, and D.C. Children's was kind of, that was an era where D.C. Children's was kind of the prototype program for pediatrics without anesthesia in critical care. And rather than spending a great deal of time in anesthesia, I think Peter Holbrook's vision was to try to make pediatric critical care an academic discipline of no less standing than very established academic disciplines in pediatrics, such as endocrinology, uh, hemonc, and, and other uh, similar specialties that, all, and, uh, that were, were quite entrenched already at the NIH. And I think uh, Peter Holbrook uh, uh, really kind of viewed it as essential that fellows get academic training, whether it was in research or education, administration. Uh, so it was that model that I grew out of. And it is really that model that our fellowship program here in Pittsburgh uh, uh, has, has used and focused on. One of the uh, other areas that I thought we could talk about next is I was just doing a little bit of reading for prep on the, the Peter Saffer himself and uh, in terms of the rich history of both him and your resuscitation center. Maybe if you wanted to spend a couple of minutes sharing some personal anecdotes, maybe for fellows who may be just starting to learn about some of this important history. Well, Peter Saffer was uh, was a, an amazing influence on everyone. I think uh, the the typical... Uh, thing in our center is if you go to anyone's desk, almost everyone has a picture at their desk of them with Peter Saffer. And uh, we have uh, a variety of scientists in our building who, uh, who are not MDs. And uh, what was so exciting was to see how Peter Saffer made everyone think about what are you, what, what, 
research you're doing, what is its value to the bedside? What is its value to the patient? It's it's quite interesting. That was so the concept of translational research way before that term may have been in common parlance, right? Oh, yeah. Peter Saffer was the essence of translational research. Uh, you know, when you go back to some of the original studies that they did, they paralyzed each other with suck strips and curare to <laughs> prove that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation worked. They tried it first in monkeys and proved that it worked, and that was translational research in 1957. And uh, that's This was really some of his original work at, at uh, Baltimore City Hospital, that's right? right. That was at Baltimore City Hospital, and uh, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, that's just a perfect example of, of Peter's try to, try to see how you can translate it, try to see how you, wh- what you do needs to have relevance to, to patient care. Uh, I think what's quite interesting uh, is that in my own career, to be exposed to that was truly amazing. But I was also exposed to John Hallenbeck's approach, and John Hallenbeck's approach was that it didn't matter how minor it might be, that if you do it well and you do good science, you build, and you build it a piece at a time, a tiny building block at a time. And those were two very, very divergent and almost, uh, you know, uh, strategies that, uh, you know, uh, the the breakthrough versus the one step at a time. And uh, I, I kind of consider myself lucky having been exposed to you know, those both of them are really uh, great scientists and clinicians, and uh, it's remarkable they had that such discrepant approaches. Peter Saffer would call the John Hallenbeck approach stamp collecting, and John Hallenbeck would say, well, if you look back, you know, and you look through the literature, the good stuff always keeps coming back, and it just gets refined at a better uh, and higher level. And so every step of the way is important. So well, you're, you're bringing up a really uh, fascinating uh, point. I was just reading an editorial, I think from a couple of years ago, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, where I think the editor-in-chief of that journal was discussing some of those very points. And, and it sounds to me, just to summarize, that good science happens sometimes when you have teams of people who have those diverging opinions, right, that can uh, be both forward-looking and visionary, and yet combine that with the stick to really try and answer some of the scientific questions in a rigorous fashion, right? Yes, I think that's a really important point. And if you look at another thing that Peter Saffer uh, afforded everyone that worked with him was such a long, rich history of experience and exposure. And, uh, and the same to say for John Hallenbeck, the the you know, the the concept that, as Peter Safferl always say, the literature does not begin with PubMed, whatever that year was, 1973 for a while. It might be into the late 60s now on PubMed. And to be able to, at a, at a journal club, uh, to have Peter Saffer, uh, you know, sitting, at, you know, in the back corner of the room, I, you know, I always say it was kind of like having Yoda on your research team, you know, the, the perspective of it, to be able to say, you know, we tried that back in 1963, and, you know, there, there might have been something to that. It was, Peter Saffer used to say, well, you got a little clue from that. And, and the, 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 the whole playing field might not have been as well defined at an earlier time point, or something else may have been 
being done as part of the management that wasn't good or counteracted a possible benefit. And if you keep re-examining things in a different light, you you you, you really can can break, potentially get a breakthrough that wasn't there before. Well, and, yeah, an example of that I was just reading are the articles in 2002 in the New England Journal showing the positive effect of cooling after cardiac arrest, which I saw him as a quote saying that those were areas that he'd been uh, with you, I guess, focused on for many years, if you wanted to talk for some detail on that for a little bit. Oh, um, you know, the, the whole mild cooling story is an extremely interesting one. I, I, it, it's, it's curious that you mentioned that he had been working on this with me. But actually, if you can go back into the late 50s and really early 60s here at the University of Pittsburgh when Peter was doing uh, hypothermia in the, uh, in the ICU uh, uh, on patients uh, for the control of intracranial pressure in, in the early 1960s. And uh, they, they were very convinced that it had some beneficial effects, and, uh, but related to infectious complications and, and not knowing exactly how to best apply it. You know, it's like anything in the ICU. You... You, you you think it has some potential, and then it's kind of like the the more the better, and it's kind of like how low can you go, and how deep can you go, and how long can you go? Uh, it's it's almost like the steroid story in septic shock. You know, initially we were using a bushel of solumedrol. And uh, people are, are starting to refine it and, and re-examine it, just like with hypothermia, uh, rather than uh, you know long periods of, of you know relatively moderate hypothermia, a relatively short burst of mild cooling with slow rewarming seems to be the best approach. And uh, I, I, it is it's 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 a very very interesting concept that many of the good things. Uh, keep coming back, and unless you have that multidisciplinary group and kind of leader with a long perspective, you, you might miss it. I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk for a few minutes uh, about the, the center in terms of, uh, I know you're the director, in terms of both maybe some of the clinical projects or the translational uh, projects, and perhaps your, some, some of your personal interests. I was reading suspended animation, some very interesting topics. If you wanted to take a few minutes, you can talk about that if you like. Uh, well, it's, our center is uh, is a remarkably diverse group of individuals, uh, some really talented folks dealing with problems really related to the resuscitation in trauma and cardiac arrest. Uh, we have uh, uh, about an equal number of people working on the adult side as we do the pediatric side which is really nice. It gives us an excellent interaction between those two groups. And uh, we have projects in the area of traumatic brain injury with a kind of a focus on uh, the evolution of secondary damage after injury, what contributes to it, how do neurons die, and what might we do about that. Uh, there's been a very strong bench-to-bedside uh, focus on that, particularly uh, not only in experimental animal models, but of analyzing uh, CSF samples, uh, uh, looking at cerebral contusions uh, resected from patients with refractory intracranial hypertension, and trying to say, this is happening in an animal model. It's also happening in the human. How do we best target it? 
Um, we also, within the traumatic brain injury area, have uh, an interesting pro- program in child abuse. Uh, the child abuse angle uh, came out of uh, a little bit of serendipity as we were examining biochemical markers of injury and different mechanisms in our CSF bank from children. A number of studies when we broke the code, the child abuse of victim values of different markers of damage were just off the roof or had a very different time course. And this suggested some fundamental differences in uh, the mechanism of injury and or other facets of uh, child abuse versus accidental trauma. So potentially kids. leading to a to a serum marker where you wouldn't have to... Uh... Yes, and this has, uh, in some of the work of Rachel Berger in our group, has led to the idea that you might be able to do a blood test and pick up some of these missed abuse victims that come into emergency rooms and are sent home. Wow. And uh, Rachel published a really nice paper in pediatrics uh, this February where uh, she did a randomized trial of 100, uh, about 100 kids coming into the Children's Hospital Pittsburgh emergency room and picked up some missed abuse victims even in our own emergency room uh, with a blood test. And this is not a blood test that proves child abuse. It's a blood test that, as I say, points to the brain just says, hey, think brain, don't think colic or gastroenteritis. Right. Uh, so that's a very interesting spin-off project and area. Uh, within the trauma area also, we have uh, an interest in uh, combat casualty care, uh, not only in the area of hemorrhagic shock with work by Sam Tisherman and our group, but also uh, uh, the area of uh, combined traumatic brain injury and hemorrhagic shock, uh, and this has become an extremely hot area now related to all the blast injuries, both in military and civilian trauma and terrorism attacks. And uh, we have a, a new program project from the Department of Defense looking at that combination. Uh, and that's quite well, I would imagine, given our current uh, military situation in Iraq, the news is filled with both that the incidence of traumatic brain injury is higher, and again, as you said, blast injury. These are very, very important and very uh, timely issues to get solved quickly, right? Or to be uh, working. They are, and uh, it is remarkable. You know, for many years, the research in blast injury focused on the hollow, uh, viscous organs, the uh, uh, the uh, in the uh, abdomen, and also with pulmonary blast injury. Uh, uh, but now, with body armor and uh, and the the mechanisms that uh, the soldiers are being injured, many of them are getting the combination of head injury and then uh, extremity trauma with secondary hemorrhage, and thus the that combination has become an emerging uh, huge problem that uh, that uh, there's great interest in trying to understand and. Uh, we've been doing a number of studies now with novel resuscitation strategies in in models of traumatic brain injury plus hemorrhagic shock, um, and uh, then the the uh, additional area of of really great interest in our center is this novel resuscitation strategy we are calling EPR or emergency preservation and resuscitation, and that is a uh, a program that. Uh, is also related to combat and civilian trauma, the situation where uh, uh, a person is exsanguinating rapidly. And uh, in that situation, once an arrest occurs from exsanguination, cardiac arrest, CPR is is really pretty ineffective. Uh, CPR with an empty tank in an already acidotic uh, 
patient uh, is not uh, generally successful. And uh, the whole concept of trying to come up with a new strategy that allows you to have a shot at resuscitating those patients is this, this whole new novel EPR strategy. And I, I had a question for you just uh, thinking while you, were, while you were talking is uh, one of the other areas that you must at least have an opinion on, uh, I think, is education. Uh, you know, the new guidelines came out for CPR, and I did another podcast where the issue of cooling after cardiac arrest may have data behind it, and yet uh, it's difficult in many centers to get it implemented for one reason or, no- or another, various barriers. And, you know, I was at a, another uh, local critical care conference, and there are still, there is much resistance, the data isn't good enough, and I, I just wanted to uh, let you talk for a couple minutes uh, about the promulgation of new evidence-based uh, approaches uh, into the into the, uh, into the practice of cl- uh, clinical critical care. Well, it, it's quite interesting that whether you take a look at a uh, cardiac arrest model in animals, uh, cross species, or a traumatic brain injury model in animals, across, again, across species. Mild hypothermia is, is just blows away all of the therapies. I think that you could talk to most of the major labs that have tried it or use it. It's pretty clear that it's very powerful, and I think the testament to that is that if you try to do an experimental animal model study of any kind of CNS insult and you don't control brain temperature, your paper is just not felt to be credible. Right. And that's a pretty, that's pretty clear, strong evidence that temperature control is pretty essential. The difficulty with hypothermia is that, it's, I guess it needs to say, it's, it's not a pill. It's right. not just something that you can inject really easily. It's not that kind of drug. And then it's also, uh, you've got the, 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 the difficulties of proving anything in the mayhem of the resuscitation setting, right. where unlike, say, testing an antihypertensive or a drug uh, to test lipid, uh, lower your uh, you know, cholesterol, you can control and screen, and uh, the studies are so much more uh, uh, easy to do. And so getting something to work in a resuscitation setting is is uh, quite challenging, and the, the two studies published in the New England Journal several years ago were, in our opinion, remarkable that anyone could do it. We weren't even sure that anyone was going to make be able to make anything work. In well, that's what I was going to ask you. You don't think studies like this are going to be repeated in the United States, or maybe you know stuff I don't in terms of uh, plans well, for that? Well, I, I think that... Uh, if uh, uh, an interesting study just came out uh, last year, and that was the neonatal trial, I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, study came out in the New England Journal showing in perinatal asphyxia a, a highly statistically significant benefit to uh, functional outcome in in newborns, and so. Uh, I wouldn't say the study, the VF study in adults, been repeated, but here another, uh, again, when you think about the, the madness going on in a neonatal resuscitation where insults might be happening for a sustained period of time in utero, even before the uh, infant is born, and in other, one, in other infants, well, there's just a difficult delivery and the infant arrests uh, right at the time of birth. You can you can see the the challenges in that kind of study, and again to show hypothermia was beneficial in that setting, again to us just suggests it's a powerful effect, and I think some people feel it might be unethical to 
uh, to randomize at this point. That's one of the conundrums right now. In some centers, you say, well, I, I think it's unethical to, ra- uh, to randomize. And in, right. in, in other centers, centers, it's, well, we're just not sure. It's a difficult thing to implement. I think one of the things that is, is very important that may simplify a lot of this is the work of Steve Bernard in Australia, where you give a couple of liters of IV iced saline, and or I guess they're using lactated ringers or Hartman solution, I think is the way you called it in uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that buys you about two degrees centigrade and is a simple, rapid way to cool. And, you know, once you get cool, it's in, in these patients, it generally does not take that much effort to maintain mm-hmm. hypothermia once you get there. And so that may be a way of simplifying this so all kind of devices or catheters or other things to try to cool can be uh, eliminated. And uh, a simple, cheap, effective uh, strategy might might turn this into, hey, there is an IV form of this that's right. easy to administer, I guess, uh, that we're all so used to giving it an IV something in critical care medicine. So that may be a very helpful uh, uh, strategy. Well, Dr. Kahanek, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I wanted to end by letting you make any final comments if you wanted to. As I said before, the title uh, of your talk, Emergency Preservation for Resuscitation Beyond CPR. Are there any other final comments you want to leave with the members of SCCM that they might learn about or or, uh, learn going to your talk? Well, the only thing that I didn't say very much about was the actual uh, talk on EPR, and I just wanted to mention that this approach was, as I call it, Peter Saffer's final baby, I guess would be the, the way to look at it. And obviously, if you're the person that developed CPR uh, and there was a, a setting in which it really is quite ineffective, uh, the exsanguination cardiac arrest setting, uh, I think uh, the concept of coming up with some type of strategy to buy some time whether it's an hour or two or three, something like that, to allow damage control surgery to be done and then resuscitate uh, a trauma victim under perfect conditions by turning on cardiopulmonary bypasses. It was really a a very, very clever idea by Peter. uh, And uh, as I indicated, it was really his last kind of vision in terms of what might represent a new strategy. And we all know that you know, something like CPR is, is very difficult in the field, and many people are not successfully resuscitated. Uh, and the idea that you might be able to preserve someone temporarily just to buy enough time to get a really good resuscitation uh, is, I think, a really clever idea, uh, one that was uh, requested, a new approach requested by the United States military in the early 80s, and is one that uh, uh, I think uh, the SCCM uh, audience, I think, will find interesting and, uh, it, and, and uh, a, a futuristic one at that. We've been speaking today with Dr. Patrick Kohanek, MDFCCM. He will be giving one of the plenary lectures at the upcoming Critical Care Congress in February 2007 in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much, Dr. Kahanek, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. My pleasure. 
This concludes our podcast for Monday, October 2nd, 2006. Please go to www.sccm.org for more information on the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress. Thanks again for listening. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.